Good morning. Uh, welcome to Christ the King. My name is Penny, and I'm the pastor here, and it is good to be with you. Um, I, th I think I probably say this every Sunday after we have to cancel because of weather. Uh, not only does a part of my Canadian soul die when we have to cancel because of snow, but, but also it is, uh, it is just good to be back with y'all. Um, it was only a week, and yet it feels like so long. And so it is wonderful to hear your voices singing praise to our God. It is good to hear our voices united together in prayer. It's going to be wonderful for us to dine at the table together. It is, it is good to be together because this is what the Lord has given us, that, that this, is, this is what he has given to us for our good, and so it is really good to be with you. And if you are a guest or a visitor, if this is your first Sunday, uh, we are glad that you're here with us as well. Uh, we are glad that you're joining with us in song and in worship. Well, this morning, uh, we're going to look at a passage out of the Gospel of Luke, uh, Luke chapter 5. So if you have a Bible, you can turn there. Luke is the third of the Gospels, the four Gospels, so Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in the New Testament. Um, and we're going to look at Luke 5. Uh, the, the passage is also printed in your order of service, so you can follow along there. But the reason why we're jumping in at Luke 5 is because for uh, the winter and the spring, we are going to be focusing our attention on the life of Peter. So in the fall, we spent the fall looking at one of Peter's epistles, 1 Peter. So we looked at his writing, his teaching. But now for, the, for this next season, we're going to look at his life. And one of the reasons we're looking at the life of Peter is because Peter is one of the, the inner circle, right? He's one of the three, Peter, James, and John, that seems to get kind of a, a closer look at Jesus, gets, his, gets this inner relationship. But but also Peter, um, even of those three, we get the most microscopic look at his life of all the disciples, right? Like Peter's the guy that um, he asks the question that everybody wants to ask, but no one has the guts to ask, right? Peter's the one who's very impetuous. He's running everywhere. He's doing things that maybe in hindsight, it's like, uh, maybe you shouldn't have done that, Peter. Like we're going to see some of those sorts of things, right? But, but what's amazing about that is that as we are watching Peter's life and we're getting a focused look at it, is that we're seeing how Jesus interacts with him. And so we're observing, actually, in many ways, what Christian formation, what discipleship looks like through Jesus' interaction with Peter. And so that's what I want us to see over the next uh, number of months, really leading up to and, and right around Easter. That's how long we're going to be in the life of Peter. I want us to see what Christian formation looks like by examining this relationship, Peter and Jesus, but more importantly, Jesus to Peter. And we're going to begin by looking at Luke chapter 5. So if you would follow along, we'll begin in verse 1 and read through verse 11. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he, this is Jesus, was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake. But the fishermen who had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. 
And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. Our God, our King, we do need you in this moment. We need you to open our eyes and soften our hearts. Father, I need you to uh, use my words, that my words would be your words. And so we ask for your help this morning, that you would allow the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts to please you, our God and our King, in whose name we pray. Amen. A number of years ago, uh, the writer David Brooks wrote a book called The uh, Road to Character. And in this book, he focuses attention on the lives of a number of historical figures. And the point of doing this is to try to extrapolate some sort of virtue from their lives that we should all seek to be embodying. And so in this book, he, he makes the distinction between two different kinds of virtue. The first virtue is a resume virtue. That's what he calls it. The other virtue is eulogy virtues. So eulogy virtues are those virtues that we want to hear said about us uh, at our funeral, when someone eulogizes us, right? We want to hear, we, we hope, well, we won't hear them, <laughs> but we hope the things will be said about us are things like he, he was a loving father, or she was, she was a, a wonderful wife, or he was always there for me when I needed him, or she would always give me her ear. She was always there, right? Those are the things we hope will be said about us. Those are eulogy virtues. But then there are resume virtues, Resume virtues are different than eulogy virtues because resume virtues are those abilities, those characteristics, those virtues about ourselves that we want to promote in such a way so that people have a better view of us, right? I mean, that's what you're doing on a resume, right? Think about what you put on a resume. You put things like he's a hard worker, right? Uh, he's, he's a skilled communicator. Um, he's diligent, right? Uh, um, he, he's got great leadership ability, those are the things that we put on a resume. Those are resume virtues. And as I was thinking about resume virtues and what we put on resumes, I started to think about what, what I've never seen on a resume before. You know, I've, I've looked at a number of resumes as we've hired for positions here and, and in other positions and other places. I've even thought about my resume that I've submitted, like when I was uh, interviewing here. And you know what I've never seen on a resume? I've never seen in big, bold, all cap letters, follower. <laughs> That's not what we put on resumes, right? What do we put instead? Follower, we put leader, right? It doesn't matter if you've ever led or not. You're a leader, right? That's what you want, to, want people to know about you. I am a leader, right? I don't want to be a follower, in fact, if someone said, you're such a follower, we would know that, that is, that's not something that we should be receiving, right? That's said in disdain. And, and, and internally, if not externally, we start arguing for why I'm not a follower, why I'm really a leader, and how I won't give in, and how I'll stand for, right? That, that's what we want to be. We want to be leaders. In fact, on every resume I've ever seen, in big, bold, all caps letters, is leader. In fact, if I found one, if 
you know, we were hiring for a position and it didn't say leadership, it would probably shock me, right? I would probably want to look more at that resume and then throw it away because this guy's not a leader. <laughs> uh, so anyway, but, um, but that's what we think, right? We want to be leaders. We don't want to be followers, right? Following is not a resume virtue. Go on Amazon and Google leadership. Look for the books. Tens of thousands of titles. Then, then look up following. There's a few, but far, far less. Because the virtue that we want is that resume virtue. We want to be a leader. But the truth is, is that if you are a Christian, though leadership is a resume virtue, on the Christian life, on the resume of the Christian life, is the word follower. If you are a Christian and trusting in Christ, before you are ever called to lead, before you are called to have authority, before you are called to, to disciple others, you are called to be a follower. That is who we are. We are to be those who follow the one who has called us. And that's what I want to see in this passage, how, how Peter, through the life of Peter, Peter exemplifies what it means to follow after Christ. That's what this passage is focusing on. It's focusing on Peter's call, right? Jesus is calling him. And I want us to see that through Peter, we observe how we follow Christ and why we follow Christ. So how do we follow Christ? Well, it begins with obedience. It begins with obedience. So, so here's the setting. Jesus is attracting all these crowds of people. This is very early in the ministry of Jesus, his ministry life. So Jesus spent about 30 years-ish becoming a carpenter, right? Learning a trade and living kind of in obscurity. People didn't really know who he was. And then he comes on the scene and he starts performing miracles and, and giving all this wonderful teaching. And so the crowds are coming around him and they're, they're pressing in on him. And so he goes out to this lake, Lake Gennesaret, which is just another name for the Sea of Galilee, which is probably a phrase we're more used to. He goes out to this lake, this sea, and he starts teaching again, right? He's describing to the uh, followers there how they're to live, and he's extrapolating God's word and doing these various things. But when he's done, he looks to Simon, who's Peter. So in the gospel, sometimes Peter is called Simon. Sometimes he's called Simon Peter. Sometimes he's called Peter. It's the same guy, okay? I know it might get confusing, but it's the same guy. He looks to Simon, and he says in verse 4, Put into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. Okay, now at first glance, this doesn't seem like that big of a deal, right? I mean, Jesus has just given this guy some advice on his fishing. It doesn't seem like that big of a deal. It just seems to be advancing the story, the narrative a little bit more. But, but think about it from, G, from uh, Peter's perspective. Jesus is a carpenter, and Peter's a professional fisherman. So this carpenter is telling Peter how he's supposed to go about his trade, his, his vocation. It, and, and the truth is, is to Peter's ears, this advice doesn't even sound very good. Do you hear how he responds in verse 5? You can hear the skepticism. Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. You see, Peter knows that the best time to go fishing is in the middle of the night. And Jesus is saying, hey, go out again. Go out again. Go out into the deep. Throw out your nets. But, but Peter, the master fisherman, you know, he could have easily looked up and said, dude, the fish ain't biting. 
This would be like if I was uh, visiting the Golden State Warriors basketball team's practice. Okay, the Golden State Warriors, one of the best teams in the NBA, and they have, uh, if not the best, one of the best shooters in the world, right, Steph Curry. So, so there's Steph, and he's getting warmed up, and he's, you know, getting loose, and he's taking his shots, and there I am, and I'm watching him shoot, and on this day, the best shooter in the world is having a little bit of an off day. And he's, he's clanking a couple, and, and he even airballs a few, right? And so the guys are ragging him, you know, airball, right? And they're doing all these sorts of things. And finally, a break comes. And so he goes and gets some water. And, and, you know, I've been watching intently how he's been shooting. And so I get up out of my seat, and I walk across the court. And very humbly, I, I put my hand on his shoulder and go, Hey, Steph, I'm Penny. I'm a pastor. I played a little bit of high school basketball. And uh, I, I really don't know that much about basketball, not even enough to really coach like little kids, but, but I've been really watching your shot. And I think that if you just turn your shoulders a little bit or extend your arm a little bit more, then those clanks, they'll be swishes. Happy to help here. <laughs> okay, what is the greatest shooter in the world going to say to the pastor, right, who doesn't really know much about basketball? Well, he's a pretty humble guy. If, if you've ever heard his interviews, he seems like a really nice guy. He'd probably put his hand on my shoulder and be like, thanks a lot, you know, I appreciate the... But, but what he should say is, dude, get back up in the seats. You have no idea what you're talking about. I'm not showing up at your church telling you how to preach... Well, maybe he would, but no, he wasn't, wouldn't do that. So go back up there and don't tell me how to do it. I'm the expert, right? That's what he should say. And that's kind of what's happening with Jesus and Peter. Peter's the expert, and Jesus is the novice. Put out in the deep. And what does Peter do? Despite his skepticism, verse 5, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word I will let down my nets. It doesn't make any sense, but I'll do it because you said so. Now, why is this important for us? This is important for us because I think that there are a lot of things that Jesus says to us that don't make a lot of sense to us. Right? Like things like uh, love your neighbor as yourself. Deny yourself and take up your cross. Guard your tongue. Right? Like all those things sound great uh, theoretically. But what about the hard neighbor? Like do I have to love that guy? <laughs> Love my neighbor as myself. Well, that's, it's easy when it's y'all, but, but that guy? Deny myself, but Jesus, I've got all these things I want, like possessions and, and, and relationships and all these sorts of things that, that I've set my heart upon. I'm supposed to deny those? I mean, guard my tongue, but I've got this zinger. I mean, I've been saving this meme for this perfect time, and I'm going to put him in his place, and the world will know how smart I guard my tongue now. You see, the truth is, friends, is that there are many things that Jesus says to us that to our ears sound very strange. And to our eyes look very puzzling, and to our perspective are very challenging. And yet to follow Jesus means we obey him even when even when it may not make sense to us. 
You see, the truth is, is that Jesus knew Peter's job better than, he, better than he did. And Jesus knows what's best for our lives better than we do. You see, to obey him means believing that his ways are better than our ways. That his perspective is greater than ours. If we are going to follow him, we must obey him. But we don't just obey him, we also trust him. And really, obedience is simply a form of trust, right? We're trusting his ways are better than our ways. And we see trust explicitly in this passage at the very end. Peter and his friends, okay, we pick up the story. Peter and his friends, they take in this enormous catch, right? This enormous amount of fish. In fact, it's so big, they get another boat out there, and the, both boats are filled, and they begin to sink. So now think about that. This is probably the biggest catch of their lives, right? They're probably sitting there, and they're thinking, man, we are set for weeks, if not months, maybe even a year with how much, how much money this catch is going to bring us. Right? But what do they do when they bring it in? Verse 11. When they brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. They left everything. Not only their fish, not only the financial gain that the, these fish represented, but their boats too, the means by which they had been going about their vocation. They left everything to follow him. See, friends, to follow Jesus is going to come with a cost. It means we are going to have to give up something. Like, it wasn't just giving up nothing. They gave up everything. I mean, think about, like, people would come by probably weeks later and go, hey, that, that was Simon's boat. It's still there. I wonder if that guy's ever going to come back again. They left everything. Right? They gave up their careers. They gave up their boats. In other Gospels, we see followers of Jesus. They're, they're giving up the social structures that have provided them support for years. It might mean giving up influence or power. I don't know what it will mean for all of you. I don't know what it would mean for us to follow Jesus. What are the things we have to lay aside? But it does mean laying aside something. In the book of Hebrews, the author says, let us lay aside every weight in the sin which clings so closely. I love that image, especially when I couple it with Philippians chapter 3, which Michael preached on a couple weeks ago, right? That we press on towards the goal. I love this image. I have this image of walking along a path, and, and as you're going, Jesus is at the end, but, but along this path, there are all these things that encumber us, that are pressing in. And what the author of Hebrews and what Paul is telling us in Philippians and what Peter and his friends do here is that anything that gets in our way of seeing Jesus and getting to Jesus and following Jesus, we lay them aside. If it's going to distract us from following after him, we don't fix our eyes on it. We turn our gaze away. If it's going to prevent us from following after him, we don't hold on to it. We put it away. We put it aside so that we can see him clearly. So that we can follow him, they gave up everything to follow him. Everything. You see, what they're doing in that is they are trusting that to give up everything and to have Jesus is greater than having everything and not having Christ at all. They're trusting as they follow him. 
That's what it means to follow. It means that we are trusting him. That what we lose for his sake pales in comparison to what we gain. And this leads us to worship. See, that's what the disciples do. Well, they're not even disciples yet. That's what Peter does. In verse 7, they came and they filled both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. He fell down before Christ. Right? This posture of worship. This, so this, I, was, I was starting to think about this. The boats are sinking. <laughs> and what does Peter do? He worships. <laughs> right? Like, wouldn't it have been reasonable for him to think, like, I, I might die. <laughs> the boat's going down. But he's not concerned about the boat or the fish. He's concerned about worshiping the one who has performed this miracle. He falls down at his feet. Right? Even the language, do you notice how his address changed? Earlier he called Jesus master, which signifies authority, but now he calls him Lord. You see, see, Peter recognizes that Jesus isn't just one with a little bit of authority because he's a teacher or a wise sage. He recognizes that Jesus is coming with divine agency. And we're going to see over time how Peter's understanding of who Jesus is and the implications of Christ's lordship are going to play out in his life. But for now, what he knows is that Christ is more than a teacher. And he's more than a sage. He is the Lord. The one who comes with divine power. And because of that, Jesus is the object of Peter's and our worship. Okay, so we've seen to follow Jesus means we'll worship him, we'll trust him, we'll obey him. But finally, the last thing we see is that to follow him means that we will follow him with mission. And we see this at the very end of our passage. The very last thing that Jesus says to Peter and to these men is from now on you will be catching men. So their vocation has changed. They've gone from catchers of fish, to now, as followers of Christ, they are now catchers of men. Now, what's interesting about this metaphor is that, um, is that you catch fish so they die, right? Like, unless you're putting them in an aquarium. I go out to Smith Mountain Lake. You know, Roger takes me because I don't know how to fish. So I drop, my, I drop my hook in the lake, and a fish bites, and I reel it in, and I'm reeling it in, and I'm taking it up to the house so I can clean it and eat it, right? Like, I want it to die so I will benefit from it. That's why I caught the fish. But to be a catcher of men is to take those that are already dead and catch them so that they would become alive. In fact, that little phrase that Jesus uses, catchers of men, that word catch, catching, It means to capture alive. And it has the connotation of rescuing from danger. You see, fish are alive and they die after you catch them, but the reverse is true of man. That we were once dead and in our capture we find life. You see, Christ captures his people. He brings them into his kingdom. We're won by his grace and we're made alive. And that becomes our mission. It becomes our mission to proclaim where life is found. For Peter and his friends, it meant changing their vocation. Now, I'm not telling y'all, all all of y'all need to quit your jobs and go stand on street corners and uh, be catchers of men. (laughs) That's not what I'm saying. For some of you, it might mean that you will change your vocation. But not all of us are called to vocational ministry. 
So that's not what it necessarily means, but whether you are a lawyer or a businessman or whether you stay at home or whether you're a teacher or a student or whatever your profession might be, in your vocation, what you are to be is a catcher of men. That this is part of your mission. It doesn't mean your vocation has to change, but part of being a follower of Christ means that we will proclaim where life is found. It means that we are to be demonstrators of lives captured by Christ. And so I think a good question for us to ask is what are we capturing people to? What are we capturing people to? Are we capturing them to our social views? Are we capturing them to our political views? Are we capturing them just to ourselves? Or are we capturing them to Christ? Because that's our mission, to be catchers of men. And we're to do this, we're to follow Jesus in this way, because we have been caught by Christ. You see, that's why we follow him. Because what this passage tells us is that the carpenter is a master fisherman. He is the one who has caught us so that we would not die in our sins, but we would have life in him. Look what Peter says when he falls before Christ. He says, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. And not just this confession of moral inadequacies, but we also hear that all those who were standing around, they were astonished. You see, when Peter and his friends come face to face with the miraculous, he knows he has no leg to stand on. Right? When we're confronted by the beauty of the Lord, what we recognize is our own ugliness. And that's actually the right response. Think about all the times in Scripture where someone comes face to face with God. Right? Think about Isaiah chapter 6 when the, the throne room is filled with smoke. Right? And God's presence is there. What does Isaiah do? Woe is me. Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips. In Job 42, when Job is interacting with God, he says, But now my eyes see you, God. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. In Revelation chapter 1, the apostle John has this vision of Jesus in the new heavens and the new earth. And in his letter, he says, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. You see, when we see the wonder of our Savior, we'll be struck by our own sin. And left in our sin, if left in our sin, the presence of Jesus is a very scary place. It is a frightening place. But Jesus doesn't leave Peter there. And he doesn't leave us there. Did you hear what he said? Peter in his despair, depart from me, I'm a sinful man. And Jesus says, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Stop being fearful. Do not fear. He didn't say, what are you, what are you scared of? He didn't say you have no reason to be afraid. He said, don't be afraid anymore. Do not fear. Do not continue to be afraid. And why? Why shouldn't Peter run in the other direction? Why shouldn't we fear in the presence of Christ? Why do we instead fall at his knees and follow him? Because he has caught us. Because he has caught us. He's not left us swimming in the sea as dead men. 
but he has caught us and made us alive. And Christ is the only one who can take those who were dead and make them alive. And he dies in his death for those who were once dead. He dies in our place so that by his death and his resurrection, we find life. Jesus is the fisher of the dead. He is the catcher of men. And that is why we follow him. And so if you are a Christian here this morning, if you are trusting in Christ and Christ alone, in big, giant, bold, all cap letters, over your head and over the rest of your life is the large word follower. And it should be. We're the followers of Christ. The followers of the fisher of men. We're followers. Amen. Father, we do thank you that you did not leave us in our sin and you did not leave us dead, but that you made us alive. That by Christ, your Son, our Lord, you, you have caught us up in your grace and showered us with your love and mercy. And so I pray that today and all of our days, that we would live as followers of you that we would put aside everything that hinders us and we would follow after our King, our Lord, the one who has caught us. And we pray in his name and all God's people said, Amen.